It is time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk with the news with my dad. And on the line, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I'm impatient because I've got so much to talk about. Is that really the because? Is anybody, I, I, I hear the impatience and I empathize. But do we think that's the because, or is there a deeper because that we have to come to grips with? <laughs> this is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? Two shout-outs. Shout I debated about making this a shout-out or a straw in the wind, but I decided it wasn't a straw in the wind because that would mean that Republicans really might, Republican leaders really might be prepared to start speaking up about DDT, but I don't think they will. But anyhow, to Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who reacted to DDT's executive orders that were issued at his, his golf club, called called them unconstitutional slop. And then the shout-out is that when Trump criticized him in a, in a Twitter and said that he had needed, that Sass had needed his help to get his nomination, responded with a public five-post statement, including, I didn't ask and I didn't use his support. Congratulations to Ben Sass. And then, second to Giuseppe Paterno, who at age 96 graduated cum laude from the University of Palermo in history and philosophy, who four years ago, never having had a chance to go to college, figured, well, if I don't do it now, I won't get the job done. So he did, and he graduated cum laude. No small thing. And then before we dive into the news, I want to acknowledge the passing of Brent Scowcroft, longtime advisor to presidents, and your second cousin once removed. And then I want to say to Brent, all... Did I already know this? Did I know that Brent Scowcroft was my second cousin once removed? I don't know probably, if I knew this. You probably didn't. Okay. Do people know what a second cousin once removed is? <laughs> he's, he's my second cousin. He was my second cousin. But I want to tell all of our listeners... If you are at home when the post person comes any time in the next couple of days, go out of your way to thank him or her for what they do every single day, six days a week. And also, when you go grocery shopping, say thanks to the staff at the grocery store that are there wearing their masks, taking their chances so that you can get food. Say thanks. All right, Pop. Well, I want to start with the Republican National Convention because it starts today. And I know you're going to be watching it. And you even told me you're going to be watching it instead of the Blazers game, which I appreciate, given that you will watch just about every Blazers playoff game. And the fact that you are prioritizing the Republican National Convention over the Blazers game demonstrates your commitment not only to democracy, but your commitment to this very program. And we appreciate that very much. What are you looking forward to? Or maybe the opposite of that, but at least what are you, let's start with what are you looking forward to with respect to the convention? <laughs> Frankly, I am looking forward to a pile of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your nonpartisan, unbiased. A lot of anger. 
a lot of anger and a lot of hate. But but I think that what the D's need to be talking about and saying, you know, tr Trump is going to make a big thing that he's having a, a crowd. It'll be a small crowd, but nonetheless a crowd. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that crowd is wearing masks. But I think that what the D's ought to be saying is poor President Trump. He isn't able. He doesn't have enough confidence in himself to go it alone. He has to have a fawning bunch of clappers to make it possible for him to show energy and appear. And I just think that, uh, and, I, and I believe that's true. We are now aware that it is going to be the Trump convention, not just the Republican, and maybe not even primarily the Republican National Convention. He's going to speak every night. This never happened, right? I can't. Uh, th th Live, apparently. There's never been a convention where, because usually there's sort of a reveal, right? There's like the opening night. There's an arc to these things typically. You know that arc. You've been to multiple conventions. You've watched more than that. Over the four nights, there's usually a particular rhythm that happens, yes? Yes. Ending in as the DNC convention, virtual convention did, with the concentration on the nominee and the speech of the nominee. There's usually a welcome day, right? There's, you know, usually a couple of, you know, it's called the Michelle Obama day. And then there's, and then there's the day that's like the vice president's day. And then there's the day when the nominee is in fact nominated and they come out and they wave. And that's what you go. Oh, the little teaser. Oh, look, it's the nominee. And then the, and then finally the climax is that they accept the nomination and they speak. And that's the, and that's the big thing. Uh, Donald Trump, I guess, has, uh, but, but I'm not going to say I'm not going it, to it's obviously egocentric, but I'm not going to say I, I'm not ready to criticize it from a ratings perspective or from a vote getting perspective. Do you, dad, do you think it is egocentric and smart or do you think it's egocentric and dumb and justify your position either way? Smart or dumb time will tell egocentric absolutely well so time will tell that's a that's even more of a dodge than i'd anticipated do you, do you have any well I'll, I'll just go ahead and give my because he what he knows usually when he goes and gives his his rallies that he'll get fox news to tune in he used to get multiple channels to stay with him the whole time now he'll get fox news to put the camera on him entirely and then you know he'll get he'll get pieces of it on CNN, MSNBC, and then on the networks, little pieces, sometimes longer pieces. This is going to be carried by multiple stations for more than just pieces. So presumably, again, people will criticize him for it, but presumably it's a chance for him to talk unvarnished, uh, unfiltered, un, uh, directly to the American people on multiple nights. It might actually, it might be a smart move for him. It might. We'll see. We'll see how how tight he is to the teleprompter. My guess is he, for four nights he won't be. I mean, it's got, he's got to be treating some of these. I have to imagine some of these are going to be like his rallies that he misses so much. He misses them so very much. Uh, we anticipate here, I'm looking at Slate, uh, some of the things to look forward to. One, Dad, how do you imagine the uh, current president of the United States will be addressing the coronavirus during the convention? 
my guess is they will be saying as little as possible about it, but he will be bragging about it, about how he cut off China and then he cut off Europe and we've had more tests than anybody. Uh, but uh, we'll see. Nicholas Sandman or uh, Sandman or Sandman, this was the a Covington Catholic high school kid that uh, got famous for smirking in the face of the Native American protester. He's going to be speaking. Uh, the St. Louis barefoot gun-toting couple, uh, they're going to be speaking. There, we also imagine. Uh, we also imagine there may be other gimmicks. We know that Trump thinks that conventions are boring. He wants to be a showman and have new things in there. Uh, he wants to, uh, rumors, well, will there be a race between Trump supporting voters? Uh, will there be a chance to, you know, will they do any other wacky TV stuff? Uh, how do you see this? If you were that, uh, stepping away from predictions, as you see this race, if you are the if you're Joe Biden, if you wanted to craft the message of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, how would you craft it? But I'm even more interested if you're Donald Trump and you want to craft the Donald Trump message versus Joe Biden. What is that message? What are they going to try to get through? Well, apparently they're going to they're they're going to be talking about policy, which is really interesting since there are so few rational or consistent policies for them to talk about. That is going to be very interesting. But uh, the, the challenge I think that they have is they need to gin up their base, but they also need to reach beyond the base. And it's difficult, I think, to do that at the same time, because ginning up the base means encouraging hate and encouraging anger and encouraging derision and encouraging, frankly, ignorance, where the reaching out, I would like to think, requires getting beyond all of those. It is now that there is such a strong trolling culture that so much of the uh, Fox News and right-wing radio and social media culture within the uh, conservative movement has overlapped so strongly, been overtaken, I would even argue, by a trolling culture. I think you and and I won't uh, I won't use the same language as you used, but I think there is I think you're onto at least a little bit of something that uh, that trying to do the sort of compassionate conservative George Bush the elder in his first election, actually the younger, excuse me, in his first election for president the presidency, that move now feels so much more divorced from the essence of the Trump Confederates that almost feels like a violation of what they have come to expect. So that'll be one of the things that we'll be watching for. Uh, he'll celebrate the economy of early last year or early this year. Uh, that any speaker that you're looking for, I, I know that you're a big Scott Bayo fan. I think that you're a big Antonio Sabato Jr. fan. They're speaking. Just about every member of the Trump family, other than Barron, I believe, Tiffany is speaking, all, all the members of the Trump family, they listed the 10 notable speakers. Five of them were Trump. And that was before they added 
four full Trump, like Donald Trumps. They just each, but you know, people with the last name of Trump were half of the speakers that they had that they were highlighting. Uh, anything else that people should be watching for? Well, one, one, one that I am, I'm guessing that probably is not going to be speaking is his sister Mary. I think probably she won't make it. It's uh, nor the niece. That actually is a segue. It's a national news story, and we, you know, the other people are caring, but we should at least address it a little bit because it was somewhat remarkable. We somewhat na- remarkable. It is remarkable. And I was interested to learn that in New York, it is legal to surreptitiously tape a conversation with someone. Where in in Oregon you can do that over the telephone legally, but you can't do it in person. Oh, I, I yeah, I I thought we were a one a one party uh, recording state, but I had not. Of course, only that's only on the telephone. And these were these were in person interviews from Donald Trump's or done by Donald Trump's niece with uh, with Donald Trump's sister. Uh, not the niece's uh, mom. Between between the niece and the sister, and the niece wrote a book, and some people started asking, "Well, where do you get some of this stuff? And where'd you get some of this stuff?" For example, the source for the story about his hiring Joe Shapiro to take his test for him comes from her, and she she just says he can't be trusted. He's a liar. He, he she used words that we cannot use over the radio without getting in trouble with the FCC. And this is the sister he liked, right? This is not right. the this is not the brother who passed away who had had a falling out with Trump. The Trump sort of got arranged to have cut out a significant portion of the family fortune. Uh, this is the this is the sister who had been a federal judge and that had never said uh, had never said a bad word about it publicly uh, and this was the uh and this was her unvarnished, apparently her unvarnished view about the guy. And of course, you know, as we clutch our pearls, it should be. I mean, this has been the view that has been promulgated and understood by lots of folks. So it's might not be. It might not feel new that this understanding of who he is exists. But it is new. It is surprising. It is notable. It is, as you said, remarkable for the. Uh, for it to be confirmed in this kind of a setting. Yes, and while we're talking about DDT, there's some other things that. Oh, I but hold on! I think we do have. I do. I think we do have a clip about this. Okay, great. Uh, if we're if we're ready to play it. God, tweet and the lie. Oh my God! I'm talking too freely, but you know, it, it, the change of stories, the lack of preparation, the lying, the holy. But he's appealing to the base. What they're doing with the kids at the border. Well, Pop, you were about to segue to another story. Go ahead. Well, there's some other stuff that I want to report on DDT. We're doing that. And then, then we haven't had a chance to talk about the last night of the Democratic Convention. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that. But DDT News Cyrus Vance, the prosecutor for Manhattan, has received approval to get DDT's Deutsche Bank records, and the federal judge has ruled for the second time that Vance does have the right to get tax records, which DDT has quickly appealed, which means it's going to go up 
on, on certainly go up to the Supreme Court for the second time, which probably means that there won't be a final ruling of the Supreme Court until after the election. But for somebody who said, well, yeah, I'm going to reduce my tax return just as soon as the audit is over, he is just frantic about doing that. And while we're talking about him in court, Jean Carroll's suit. Jean Carroll is the woman who is suing him for slandering her, for saying that uh, she lied about his improper conduct toward her. Judge Bernard Saunders has said, has turned down Dee's request to put the whole case on hold, saying it can go ahead, citing the Supreme Court ruling in the Cyrus Vance case, brought case, citing as the authority. And the interesting thing about that is that almost certainly means that there are going to be depositions and maybe even a DNA test because apparently Ms. Carroll may have kept may have kept uh, some sample. Anyway, the D.C. Circuit ruled seven to two that the House can force Don McGahn, DDC's former counsel, how White House counsel, to testify, and that the House has standing to pursue a court case against DDT's transferring money, unconstitutionally certainly, transferring money for his wall. He issued yesterday what he calls an emergency order, made a really big deal about it. Uh, for plasma, he, he has told the FDA that they have to speed things up on the use of plasma for for cause for COVID victims. And this is coupled with a charge the day before that the deep state people at the FDA and maybe the CDC and who knows where else are trying to slow it down. And the I just got to say that he did he did that. While the FDA director was standing next to him, and the FDA director certainly has to go down as as a portrait of infamy, of of cowardice, to allow that to happen without ever speaking up. The when we're talking about the things that his sister has had to say. One of the things I come away with it is the numbing, this is the national numbing towards stuff about Trump. That uh, his followers just say, oh yeah, well, that's just one more thing that they say about him. And it's probably true, but so what? We're waiting for him to kill somebody standing in Fifth Avenue. And uh, the convention, we talk about the convention, something that... The, the corruption of this man knows no bounds. The RNC, that's Republican National Committee, has chosen a hub place for stuff that they need in D.C., and they decided to pick a federal building, which coincidentally is just around the corner, less than a four-minute walk from Trump Trump's hotel in Washington, D.C., and the hotel jacked their prices up 60% so that if you want to stay there you you start at 7.95 a night if you want a really nice place you can go up to more than 2 
$1,000. Whoa, per night. And then relevant to all this going on is with him is his battle against the post office. The House, Saturday, 257 to 150 with something like 26 Republicans joining every Democrat. $25 billion for the post office, which Mitch McConnell says he's not going to bring, to, apparently is not going to bring to a vote. But it's going to be interesting to see how he can stick to that, because I think there are going to be a lot of folks telling their senators, how can you not speak up? And the interesting thing about 257 to 150 is that that's 63%. And there were 28 according to my count, 28 members of Congress that did not vote, were not present, apparently, were excused. If all of them were there, and 20 of those 28 went with the majority, that's a veto-overcoming majority. So that story is not over. Well, Dad, protests have erupted in Louisiana. Police have fatally shot a black man on Friday. Trayford Pellerin, a 31-year-old black man, killed while entering a convenience store in Lafayette, Louisiana. Police say he had a knife. It previously caused a disturbance at another convenience store. They followed him on foot uh, from the first store to the next. According to their release, they attempted to stop him with stun guns. The killing was captured on video. Officers seen firing 11 shots at Pellerin. According to his family, he had sought help for social anxiety earlier this year, may have been experiencing a mental health crisis. Protesters have since taken to the street in Lafayette by the hundreds, blocking highways, chanting outside City Hall. And on Saturday, Lafayette police deployed smoke grenades to disperse the crowds. They met protesters in riot gear on Sunday. The mayor, Josh Guillory, I think the Lafayette, it's called Lafayette mayor, it's called the Lafayette mayor president, perhaps. I think that's what it's called. Uh, Josh Guillory defended the police shooting, referring to Pellerin as a threat. Protesters and the local NAACP chapter have now called on Guillory to resign. Uh, how are we concerned that this story won't get the attention it needs? Is it getting extra attention because we are still in, in Portland, Oregon? Of course, we're still having nightly protests, and we should talk about the pro, the clash of protesters that happened this weekend. Or are we worried that this story won't get the attention it deserves with everything else going on, including the Republican National Convention? That one, and also there was one in Wisconsin. And what I what I have to wonder is, do these cops not pay attention to the news? Do they not pay attention to what's going on in the country? Do they not realize that they need to absolutely use every possible means to, if it's appropriate, take into custody, or if it's appropriate to get to a hospital or if it's appropriate to just simply talk down somebody before they start shooting before they start shooting 11 times it it uh, it's just mind-boggling now there was a clash of protesters here on saturday the 
alt-right folks, including the Proud Boys, hosted a hosted their own protest, and then and the cops just said, "Okay, you guys fight it out." <laughs> yeah, they, they've called they've called protests riots on multiple occasions. Although generally, that's when the protests have gone late into the night, uh, but they have frequently announced riot status for many protests. This one happened in broad daylight, but it also included at least at least one photo that I saw, an alt-right protester brandishing a revolver, uh, and the office and officers didn't step in. There were none to be seen as of 1.30. The crowd eventually dispersed uh, after fighting, after, after weapons were drawn, after objects were thrown, uh, and now the, they're still still haven't heard comment from the mayor on this. Sarah Iannarone, I think, uh, did offer comment. Sarah Iannarone running for mayor in this coming November election. Uh, Dad, what do you make of the police not stepping in? Is it is it? Uh, oh, well, it's broad daylight. They only want to do it when they're worried it's time to go to bed and things are going to get even more hairball. Was it because, oh, well, if there's weapons that could even get more dangerous? That's how like the revolutionary many revolutionary war skirmishes started or is it the or is it the uh, fear of many of a protester that in fact it's because there are sympathizers within the police bureau with the proud boys or is that just way too unfair i hope that it is not that i wonder if it's a little bit uh, the feeling when when two gangs both of whom are bad folk start killing each other, uh, let them go for a while because that'll reduce the size of the gangs. The the problem that we've got to recognize, and I know you and I, I think, we're going to continue to differ on this, but we've got to recognize that somehow we have to be able to winnow out this relatively small group of young, almost all white vandals who who I do not believe for a moment are really motivated by a desire for racial justice, but who are motivated by the pleasure of being vandals and of hating government and of hating control and of hating authority who who vandalize. And somehow we've got to be able to winnow them out and get them appropriately charged and convicted and so so that the great majority of folks who are carrying forward the protests the demands for racial justice do not have what they're doing completely overshadowed especially on the fox and I know you don't watch fox much but I watch fox a little a fair amount and Fox is just having a field day, a field day with this, and it is hurting the cause. Yeah, I, I am I am not encouraging, I don't encourage vandals. I just want to make sure you include that second part. I just want to make sure any any discussion of uh, you know criticizing broken windows, criticizing uh, spray paint is what in the broader context, of the larger issue at play and that we don't play into what Fox News would like to do and make this mostly about vandals and not about 
a, a global effort as well as a local and national effort for social justice. Today, the Republican convention starts. On Thursday, the Democratic convention ended. And you and I haven't had a chance to debrief that convention in, on its last day. Your reflections. Well, first, if I, I, as you know, I am not one that likes to pick favorites or the best of this. And, but, but if I had to pick one thing, one thing that just really, really moved me was Braden Harrington. Braden Harrington, boy. 13 years old, who stutters and who had, an, a, 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 who had help from Joe Biden back when he was not doing it to, to, for any publicity thing, helped Braden with hints of how to deal with a stutter because Joe Biden has had to overcome a stutter. And went on, I think it was live, to speak up and to it was it made me cry it makes me almost cry just thinking about it it was an absolutely marvelous courageous thing and i was very impressed with john meacham john meacham's scholarly but heartfelt recitation of how important this election is the american Indian Deborah Holland, a congresswoman from New Mexico, who talked about her ancestors having had democratic societies here going back to the year 1200, moved me. Sarah Cooper was really, really funny. She she did a lip sync of, of, of a voiceover Donald Trump, which was just really good. Mike Bloomberg, who I, some folks, some progressives didn't like the fact that he was there, but he did a very good job of a fact litany. And then it was fun to see Steph Curry and Steph Curry's beautiful family, his just beautiful children and his wife doing a little thing. And then I thought one of the, the nicest, maybe the best line of the whole thing, certainly the last night, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who was the, the moderator, the hostess, who said, Joe goes to church so often, he doesn't need federal troops and tear gas to get him there. I thought that was just really, really good. One of the things I noticed was you didn't have all the applause lines. When you've got you know, you've got 10,000 people there, how many people normally in a convention hall, Pop? Well, the, the, two that, the two where I was actually a delegate and the one where I addressed the convention, there were over 30,000 people in the room. Yeah, it's a lot of people. And when there's that many people, there is an expectation and even if you don't have the expectation, it happens naturally. And so the speechmakers ended up uh, creating them applause lines. Uh, yeah, the, and it, whether they create them or not, they're applause lines. Every other sentence, there has to be a clap, which takes away the power of the message. And we didn't have to deal with that this time. And Biden's, Biden's speech was just really, really good, and it was better because... It was between him and those of us watching on the screen, not between him and a bunch of folks who wanted to shout and scream and holler. Uh, we got a text in saying all conventions are basically infomercials. This is more now, now that they really are just TV shows, now that there is not 
a group of people gathering and all the side events that are happening and all the things that are part of the convention other than just the TV show. Now it's uh, now it really is pretty much just the TV show that I don't know if you noticed. Did you see that the uh, did you see that the Republicans are not going to even vote on a platform? They just decided they're not going to have a platform. <laughs> they just say, yeah, this is going to be a kid. We're going to call it. This is just an infomercial, and we're not even going to pretend anymore. It came out. This was their press release. Let's see it. I did I did put it here. It says, uh, uh, and I got to give a shout out to Curry Chisholm. I saw him post it. It says, holy crap, the Republican Party has literally announced that it has no formal policy platform other than Trumpism. And then he quotes it. Resolved. The Republican Party has and will continue to enthusiastically support the president America, the president's America First agenda, and then it says resolved. Okay, and this is uh, he clarified that the typo was in the uh, in the announcement uh, resolved that the 2020 Republican National Convention will adjourn without adopting a new platform until the 2024 Republican National Convention. So. COVID or Trumpism uh, or some combination. <laughs> we got a text in. Why do you think our leaders, and I think we, they mean the mayor and former leaders, not speaking out on the protests and in Portland? Uh, it, when you said, if I could ask the texter, clarify, I've heard lots of leaders and former leaders speaking out about the protests. I wonder if you mean uh, criticizing certain elements of it and, and excesses of it, or if you mean not speaking out on the police non-intervention this weekend, clarify that question a little bit, Dad. But uh, not Dad, but uh, del- delighted texter. Unless Dad has learned how to text, which would also be delightful. Uh, but Pop, do you have? Uh, h- how have you been feeling about how the Portland intelligentsia and people with you know previous platforms and profiles? have been showing up with respect to the protests here in Portland over the last, heck, many days? Not a lot. Okay. All right. Uh, on Saturday, the House approved a $25 billion measure, measure to protect the Postal Service. I believe we do have a clip of Louis DeJoy, uh, the Trump hand-picked head of the U.S. Postal Service, when asked by Senator Mitt Romney whether the post office could handle the influx of 2020 ballots, I believe DeJoy had this to say. Can, can you uh, do you have a high degree of confidence that that virtually all the ballots that would be mailed, let's say, seven days before an election would actually be able to be received and counted? I mean, it is if people vote within seven days of an election, are, are they? Are they highly confident? Are you highly confident that those ballots would then be received? Extremely highly confident. We will scour every every plant the day you know the, each night leading up to election day. Um, uh, very very confident. So, Dad, the House did it. What's the Senate going to do? Nothing. But as I said earlier, the, whether they can get away with saying nothing because of folks talking to their senators, we're going to see. While we're talking about that, by the way, if there is another special session, and there probably will be, I am hoping that uh, does a Canop's bill to 
change you know, Oregon law so that the deadline is not the arrival, but the postmark of your mail ballot passes. I think that would be a really, really good thing. You know what I ju- what just occurred to me, Pop? I mean, not just this moment, but not very many days ago, is that that's an urban-rural issue. It, it, it hadn't, I don't know if you're the one who brought that to my attention or somebody else. I was too dense to think about it. But, of course, for, you know, a rural Republican, he represents a, a district in, in sort of central eastern Oregon that uh, there are, you know, they're further away from drop boxes. Right. And, and the mail delivery is slower. So creating an early deadline when we announce that, oh, the post office has said that if you, you know, don't mail it by Wednesday or Thursday, it's not going to be delivered on time. That's because they want a common standard around the state. But the truth of the matter is, yeah, I, I from have, Portland I have to Portland, felt, usually one day is enough. I have felt from the very beginning when, when the vote by mail initiative would pass and we became a vote by mail, I, from that moment, felt that there was a constitutional issue discriminating against remotely uh, remote rural people. And I just think it needs to be cured. Uh, you know how many mailboxes and sorters have been removed from Portland? Again, why are leaders not speaking out on this? I have been calling our senators but not heard their plans. Oh, to be clear, there have been a lot uh, that, that uh, Merkley and Wyden and multiple members of the House delegation from Oregon have been uh, decrying what's been happening about the Postal Service. That's been a major national issue and do want to give shout outs to, uh, to Oregon leaders for engaging with it. And it was in part that pressure that led to a House vote, uh, which included included a bunch of Republican votes to get it across the House. The problem at this point with that is not uh, uh, the problem with that at this point is not local leaders in Oregon and not even Democrats in Congress. The problem now is Mitch McConnell and potentially Donald Trump, who don't want to fund the post office, who've been trying to privatize the post office for a long time. Who force, uh, who now force, unlike other agencies, to prepay all of the retirement benefits, so they can show that the, so they can try to make an argument that the post office is not profitable, and they try to say that then a service that was laid out in the Constitution has to make a profit. It's not a business, by the way. And I am waiting. I am waiting impatiently for for political leaders on both sides of the political aisle, both these and ours recognizing and pointing out and emphasizing that the post office was was not designed to be a profit-making operation. It was designed to provide communication um, between Americans that is necessary for the, the really good functioning of the society and to the extent that it can pay for itself is great, but nobody demands that the Department of Defense pay for itself. Nobody demands that the Department of Labor pay for itself. Nobody demands, heaven knows, that the Department of Commerce pay for itself, even though they are out there shilling for corporations most of the time. Why in the world do we let folks get away with suggesting the post office should pay for itself? Well, the reason is because the post office does have a source of income. And so that seems to be the excuse. But that's, that's, a, that's a boom. That's a great thing that helps 
provide a service that for the preservation of liberty, for the preservation of a of a an economy that works, you gotta have a post office. It is uh, they've been under attack to try to be privatized by folks who would profit from that for a long, long time. I am hopeful. I am hopeful that the backlash about the anti-post office moves will, in fact, lead to greater support for that institution, a recognition that it needs to be supported so it can be even stronger in this 21st century. I, I almost in the habit still saying as we move into the 21st century, we're smack dab in it, man. It's the 20s, Dad. It is the 20s now. Uh, and as far as the... Uh, um, uh, and have heard lots of people. I mean, this is this has become a cause celeb all over the place. And if you're not catching it enough in the media, we'll try to do our job. Uh, but I will also say it is a commentary on the state of the media, and we know that. We know that so many of the large conglomerates don't uh, don't prioritize uh, public services as much as private services. Heck, they there are themselves a private profit making service and don't and I would I would like to say that there was a demonstration in support of the post office in front of the post office located on Schuyler Street in our neighborhood and I was there I was a little frustrated that there that whoever called the the demonstration not a, not a protest it was a demonstration support with all kinds of signs saying we love the post office and support the post office there was there was no central figure and and nobody uh, brought a bullhorn or or kind of brought the crowd together. But it was really nice to see there were there were probably uh, sixty or seventy folks there and and I was glad to be there. Karen had that question about the protests. I think that one of the challenges of people speaking out about the protests and I and I you know you've seen you've heard Dad's interchange Dad and my interchange is. It, and and I have to give some empathy to the mayor. I also have critiques of the mayor, but uh, but I also have some empathy for the mayor. That is a tricky thing to weigh into rhetorically because what you want to say just about every time is don't break stuff, don't hurt anybody, do be on the side of bending the arc of history towards justice. And saying all of those things in an inspiring, in a relevant way when sometimes you're going to want to say one of the things a little more and the other time you're going to say the other thing a little bit more, that can be a little tricky or maybe a little bit redundant. And it is a tricky thing to manage right now and to know what to do. I, I, I'll get into my critique. At some point I might offer a couple of approaches that I think might make sense. Uh, and, uh, you know, what do I know? But I've been thinking about it a bunch. But, Dad, let's get to election news. By the way, we got a text from Marcy Fact is, the United States Postal Service is profitable. Uh, $5 billion per year mandate issue. Yeah, this was the $5 billion per year. I think Marcy was talking about the thing that I mentioned briefly, which is a mandate that they include all of the uh, uh, all of the retirement benefits. I think a 75-year retirement benefit uh, for, uh, for all uh, post office workers. And that that then... Uh, makes it hard to show an on-paper profit. But if you don't but if you don't include all of that piling up at once, then it does show a profit. Marcy, if I have that right, confirm it. If I got it wrong, please educate me or give me a link so I can better describe it. But thank you very much. And if you have a text, you can text us 971-220-5979. Again, it's 971 
888-528-5979. For all your corrections where we get something wrong or for stuff you want to make sure we cover that we might otherwise miss. Pop, let's get to some election news. What else you tracking? Kanye West's campaign. Really? Here? The election news and the first thing you say is Kanye West? That's it where we are? appears to have died a morning because it, it turns out that that, uh, that uh, RNC lawyer who was running in with signatures in Wisconsin was a couple of minutes late. And in Ohio, they screwed up in the paperwork, so he is not going to be on the ballot on either of those two states. And so I, Kanye is, is going to go off into the sunset, never having made the sun rise. Well, no, he, let's stick with Kanye for a moment. You brought it up. But he is, so here's what we know. He definitely won't be on the ballot in just about 30 states. He missed the deadline in 25 of them. That includes Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, as well as the District of Columbia. Uh, In Illinois, Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia, he failed to turn in enough valid signatures. In Illinois, less than half were deemed valid. In Montana, officials accepted just a third. Uh, So now... There is no mathematical possibility he can be president. And we now understand that that wasn't the purpose of him getting on the ballot was to be president. In fact, I think even he has said the reason was to siphon votes from Joe Biden to help elect Donald Trump. Uh, the uh, He has 2% support nationally. Among black respondents, he has 2% support, 4% among Hispanics. His highest support at 6% is among Generation Z voters, presumably fans of Kanye West. Uh, as a tra- He said in an interview earlier this month, he is not, quote, not denying that his campaign seeks to hurt the Biden's candidacy. So anyway, Dad, yeah. And, and yeah, a the couple squad, of states. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. The, the, uh, the members of the House refer to themselves as the squad in their primary, are all winning big, and uh, I I predict are going to win in November big, which is something that, uh, and I think the squad is almost certainly going to get bigger. Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, is not going to be the sheriff of Maricopa County again. He lost in the primary to his longtime deputy, Jerry Sheridan. The vote was 37%, 36%, and then they also ran 22%. The, uh, the Sheridan is now going to be running against Sheriff Pinzone, the Democrat who beat Arpaio last time out, and that will be an interesting one to watch. The House of Representatives is almost certain to have a QAnon supporter, somebody who believes in Q as a member of the House Democratic Caucus, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia, who lives in a very, very, very red district. You'd you'd like to hope that a Democratic candidate could convince even those Georgia redneck Republicans that you really don't want to send somebody to Congress who supports an organization who claims that there is an international pedophile ring led by Hillary Clinton. Oh, my goodness. Where do you start? Dad, the one thing that you and I hadn't mentioned, I don't think, was that 
The South Carolina Senate seat has moved from likely Republican to lean Republican, according to the Cook Report. That means it's now viewed as a potential swing seat. Uh, Jamie Harrison, the candidate who is challenging Lindsey Graham. Can you just imagine how wonderful it would be to get rid of Lindsey Graham? I I don't know how how she's running, but, but I would think the constant juxtaposition of him four years ago saying what he said about DDT just really, really, really cutting him down and now his slavish support and just juxtaposing those in 30-second spots. And is this the man you really want to trust representing you in the Senate? When you look at the uh, recurrent Republican-held seats, you look at the uh, the uh, Democratically-held seats, there is only one uh, seat now that leans Republican, and that is Jones in Alabama. Uh, that looking now, it's pretty hard to, you know, it was hard to, for him to win the first time, and now it seems even harder to win the second time. But out of the Republicans have 23 seats up, there are six, and this is, for people who are wondering what could happen if there is a landslide election, if there is a Democratic tsunami, which I guess is more than a landslide, what you're looking for first is Martha McSally uh, winning in. Uh, uh, where you're looking, not Martha. Uh, what you're looking for is McSally winning in uh, Arizona, and then the um, uh, and then you're looking at the toss-up seats, uh, and then you're looking at the toss-up seats. And those toss-up seats are now identified as six. Colorado, Cory Gardner, Georgia, Purdue, Iowa, Jody Ernst. Iowa now, Dad, Jody Ernst in what is viewed as a toss-up seat. She will be speaking at the Republican convention. Maine, Susan Collins, Montana, now viewed as a toss-up seat. I think that I would probably still put that as a lean R seat. And Tom Tillis in North Carolina. The lean R seats, and this is where, to me, this is where, to me, it is uh, sort of the really surprising category. This is Kelly Loeffler in Georgia, uh, the one who owns a, a WNBA team and criticized Black Lives Matter. The open seat in Kansas and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Dad, there are multiple. There are now four Southern U.S. Senate seats, not counting the likely Republican. Those aren't solid R. I'm just looking at the Cook Report. Not looking at the solid Republican seats, Mitch McConnell, and if you consider uh, Texas Southern State, then uh, then Cornyn there. That is at least four uh, Southern U.S. Senate seats at issue. Dad, that's been a long time. It's been it's been since not long after the signing of the Civil Rights Act that there have been this many uh, Senate seats in the Deep South this hotly contested. Well, I I am wondering I am wondering if our guest is waiting for us to talk to him. Yeah, we, uh, we've got uh, Don Moore is on the line. Dad, you should introduce who Don Moore is and why we're going to be talking to Don Moore. I would be glad to introduce him, and then I will look forward to listening and popping in when I feel that I have something to add. Go ahead. Well, Don, are you with us? Don, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hey, Don, Pop might not, you guys Don not. Don Moore, who after decades of service to the Portland Zoo is retiring, who I, I, has stories to tell, and we are just so delighted 
to have him with us this morning. And the one thing I'm curious about is to how come when you've been running the zoo for decades, you have a New York telephone number? <laughs> well, I was in the New York zoos for um, years, and then at Smithsonian for 10 years before coming here. And I've been here for about five years. I just never gave up that phone number. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Dr. Don, director of the Oregon Zoo, recently announced plans to retire at the end of August. That's really soon from now. Dr. Don has had a 45-year career in zoo management, animal welfare science, wildlife conservation. Thanks for your service. Dr. Don, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Why did you decide to retire? Because 55 years would have been too long? <laughs> Probably. Well, like a lot of us, you know, the COVID pandemic has caused some deep personal reflection. And um, my entire family is um, almost my entire family. Some are here in Portland, but um, most are on the East Coast. My daughters are on the East Coast and I'm not getting any younger. And um, maybe 55 years would have been too long. So, so we're not only losing you, here. we're not only losing you at the zoo, we're losing you geographically. Yeah, um, I'll still be uh, director emeritus for a while, and I'll help the foundation with, with fundraising and, you know, um, interactions with our supporters. How did you get into zoo stuff? How did you decide you wanted to work in animal welfare science? Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, I wouldn't recommend this to any uh, eight to 12 year olds out there, but I was the kid who would show up at school with a pet toad in his pocket. Um, and so I've loved animals as long as I can remember. And, um, and then I went to school for zoology and animal behavior and, uh, animal welfare science and cognition were rising sciences. So, um, I've managed to have a career, you know, researching, deer and bears and elephants it's been pretty fun is there an animal you hate be honest for a second is there an animal you, you're supposed to be a friend of all animals is there an animal actually that drives you nuts that you you know just say this is an animal if we if we didn't have it at the zoo i'd be fine with it if people did if we didn't have to look at posters of it, it'd be fine in fact if it shrunk its population is there any animal that you're not in favor of be honest dr don well there's there's a difference between being nuts, um, an animal that drives me nuts, and an animal that might scare me. So Fair. an animal that might scare me is um, uh, one of the, you know, venomous spiders of the world. I don't like them. Um, and an animal that drives me nuts, but I love them to death, are giant pandas. You know, the National Zoo just announced that they're having, they just had another baby giant panda. But um, trying to breed pandas and giant pandas to save them from extinction uh has been a little bit of a chore um but we're doing okay there so. why won't pandas have sex dr don uh, <laughs> um they they will the boys just have to learn and so um i think there have to be a lot of them around but um uh, they're they're big and fat and roly-poly and that makes it more difficult i guess what, how do you feel about mosquitoes? I am in favor of full-on mosquito, wasp, and hornet eradication. It is where my environmental sensibilities leave off. Tell me why I am wrong. Well, you know, a lot of our beautiful migratory birds um, are, are, 
you know, small bats that are fascinating to me um, and other animals eat mosquitoes. Um, fishermen are interested in mosquitoes because their larval form, the wigglers, are in the water and those wigglers feed the minnows that feed trout and salmon populations. So um, on the one hand, I'm in favor of mosquitoes. On the other hand, I am not in favor of death by mosquito. Um, they are the one animal on the planet that kills more people than anything else because they transmit so many diseases like malaria. Yeah, I, and, and they make it less fun to camp. Uh, so I th- <laughs> I'd be fine. I would feed the fish. Okay, and I bet you the birds would find gnats to eat. We can talk about that another day. Proudest moment. What are some of the proudest things that you've been a part of during your 45-year zoo management career? Um, wow. Um, working with bears, um, all bears around the world, and introducing middle schoolers to those bears. Um, and I think... You know, these aren't personal accomplishments. Um, It takes an army to actually do conservation and conservation education out there. And I'm really proud of the way that that Oregon Zoo and other zoos have strengthened our partnerships with um, agencies and tribes and um, not-for-profits like the Nature Conservancy. At Oregon Zoo, I'm most proud of our relationship with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which has helped us with um, uh, stationing a biologist in our new education center. And uh, that biologist, Leah Schrote, is able to leverage a whole bunch of other Fish and Wildlife Service biologists to come into the zoo with, you know, and, and be able to see over one and a half million people a year and explain their stories, whether they're helping to save salmon in the Pacific Northwest or bears or, or whatever it is. And so those, those partnerships, I think I'm really proud of those. Do you have a favorite animal? Do you have an animal that you are happy to see every single day or that you wish you would have more of other than more pandas? Um, every animal, uh, but any bear and um, elephants as, you know, the biggest land mammal on the planet are favorites of mine and um it's sad to see them uh poached and and kind of driven toward extinction and so that's why we're so passionate about saving them this is maybe if not the perfect segue a a good segue to something i wrestle with about zoos i was in and zoos i'm a supporter of zoos i'm a big fan of the Oregon Zoo. i think you've done remarkable work i'm so grateful uh, Thanks. I was in uh, I was actually in in Lyon, France, and they have a, a little nature, this huge park in Lyon, France, and it includes some areas where they actually have some, some zoo animals. It also has some cages that are no longer filled, but the cages are still there and they're little cages and they're cages that used to have like a bear in them. Yeah. And there and and it's so you can see not just in like old grainy black and white pictures, you can actually walk next to what zoos used to look like, which just looked like horror shows. Right. It looked like it it was the the size about the ratio of like a travel crate for my dog. Okay, that but this wasn't a travel crate. This was the cage that that bear would have to stay in. Uh, that lion, that tiger would have to stay in a little bigger than a travel cage to, to be sure, uh, but not nothing like habitat. 
how do you think? And obviously, zoos have gone a long way since, you know, 100 years ago. There is still, though, this question that for animal lovers, which you so obviously are, this question of at what point do we create uh, do we create habitat that is for human beings to be able to walk around and see the animals, which has the benefit of feeding money into a system that actually allows for there to be animal scientists with jobs to advocate against poaching, etc. And at what level do we say, yeah, but it's still a little weird if there are folks who are making dough off of the, the sort of the, the, hey, look at that of animals and then overlaying that with the experience of the animal. How do you sort of balance that in your own mind? How do you uh, try to offer sort of the moral North Star of how we should be thinking about animal care and even zoos in the next hundred years? Yeah, that is such a great question that we've wrestled with, you know, ethically and morally. Um, I started in one of those horrible zoos and I was on my way to to vet school and fell in love with the the elephant at that zoo and stayed around to renovate it so that the elephants had more space and it became an elephant breeding center. So I'm trying to weigh, you know, the the risk of endangered species going extinct and having them in national parks where they're not so protected versus having them in zoos, giant pandas, elephants, uh, condors, where we can breed them, protect them, and and do public education. Um, and so I've worked through my career to, to make those links between the modern zoos and the the national parks, because everybody who's urban can't necessarily get into the national parks like you're talking about. Um, you know, I think of Yellowstone. Sure, we've got a huge national park there, but um, say brown bears get into trouble in Yellowstone, and they have they have two choices. They they can uh, humanely kill those brown bears and take them completely out of the system, or they can place them. Um, in zoos, which is what we've been doing for for years to educate the public that might go to Yellowstone about the importance of brown bears, right? So, um, so we're we're a sanctuary for um, those orphaned animals, those those um, problem animals from the wild, and we can have those animals help as ambassadors for their wild cousins to teach people about those animals, and then. We're also home to um, endangered species like giant pandas at the National Zoo or like Asian elephants at Oregon Zoo, like condors. We've got 40 condors. You can only see three of them at Oregon Zoo. The other ones are, you know, off-site in Clackamas County, and we've released over 60 into nature, into national parks. We've released over 12,000 butterflies into, you know, state parks and nature conservancy lands in Oregon, and you never even get to see the butterflies. Um, we can only talk about our work, you know. So, um, so it's it's an ethical dilemma that we wrestle with, and that's why I've focused on on animal welfare for my career um, to make sure that the animals in my care have the best possible um, care and welfare throughout their lives. Clackamas County. Where is the you say condors in Clackamas County? I was unaware that you had a facility in Clackamas County. What is that like? <laughs> it's it's a metro site um, owned by Metro Parks and Nature, and um, uh, they have offered um, for about I don't know I think almost twenty years 
Um, some of that site, um, it's totally off limits to the public, to the zoo. They've offered it to the zoo to have the California condor breeding program. And California condor is a misnomer, by the way. They used to be from Mexico all the way up into British Columbia and all the way east, maybe to Buffalo and New York. They eat big stuff. They're left over from the Pleistocene. But working with San Diego Zoo, we helped to rest to to kind of reinvigorate the condor population from the low of 26 birds to we've got 500 birds in the wild and in breeding centers now. And Oregon Zoo has over 40 of those. When I was a kid, I read about California condors. I, too, uh, love animals. I have not demonstrated the, the moral commitment to it that you have, of course, but I'm really grateful to the work you've done. And and I was set. It looked like the California condor was going to become extinct. I mean, it looked like they were just yep. going to be gone. And now it looks like it's not going to become extinct. And now you're not going to have to call it a California condor anymore. <laughs> I am hoping somebody lobbies for a name change as soon as they come back into Oregon. You know, they're in they're in Arizona, they're in Utah, they're in California. They're going to be in Oregon in the next couple of years for sure because we're working with the Yurok tribe in Northern California to do a release there and a condor can fly 200 miles just to find, you know, a dead carcass of a whale or, wow. or an elk or something. Um, so they'll be here. Um, I think it's the, the North American condor. <laughs> or I, there might, and there might be a, there might be a native American name. That'd be a winner. We do it like we renamed yeah, it that's a, right. a mountain. That'd be my, if I were being your communications consultant, that's what I'd be looking for was a native American name. Now, you mentioned butterflies, something I didn't know until I was just a block away from my house. And there was a woman who is she had a sign on her front yard that said registered habitat. And she happened yeah. to be out in her yard working. And I was like, registered habitat for what? And this this started a 20 minute conversation. And she said uh, monarch butterflies. And she explained this is this is just a month ago. And, and you know, we were socially distanced. It was outside. And she explained that uh that I think it was 97% since just the eighties. since just when I was a little kid that 97% of the monarch butterfly population has gone away. You might have a more updated number. Maybe I got that number wrong, but that was the number that stuck with me that just, there'd be a huge decimation of the monarch butterfly population that she was creating a, uh, that she had created a habitat where it was milkweed, as I recall, milkweed was yeah, the thing right. that they needed. And so she had all these milkweed plants so she could be one of the places where, cause that's like the only thing that the, uh, that, that what is the pupil stage? The only thing that the, uh, that the, uh, uh, the, the, that stage of development, the monarch butterflies will eat is in fact milkweed. And she wanted to create one more way station on their path. Uh, tell us more about the work you're doing with butterflies or that you were doing with butterflies. The, the, after you decided to abandon the animals and leave Oregon entirely. <laughs> I'll still be in touch. Okay, good. Um, our team is, is expert in butterflies, and we actually work with um, some of the prisons around Oregon and Washington. To um, uh, the, the incarcerated ladies um, help us raise um, uh, butterfly food plants. And we work with... Uh, Taylor's checker spot and um, silver spot butterflies, and they are unique to Oregon's coastal prairie system. So as you drive along the coastal highway on the on the kind of ocean heads, you can see these grasslands instead of pine forests, and those butterflies are unique to those. And with 
you know, the development along the highway and fast vehicles going along the highway, um, both of those things have taken habitat from the butterflies, and then if the butterflies try to, you know, cross the road, they, they get killed by a truck or something. So we've raised, in conjunction with the, the women in the prisons, um, uh, thousands of, of plants and thousands of larvae, and then um, we raise a lot of those at the zoo and in an off exhibit building. And then when the when the butterflies are ready to go back, either as um, pupa, the end of the larval stage, or as adults, um, then we release them. Um, and we've released thousands. And and people say, you know, conservationists say that Oregon Zoo has been responsible for um, saving at least one of those endangered native butterflies and then we leave the monarch stuff to to others i've got friends in highway departments and zoos you know up and down the coast who are all planting milkweed to help save monarchs and the monarch migration is one of the last enormous migrations in the entire world and it's you know hundreds of thousands of monarchs that are migrating up through the Midwest and the East Coast, and also there's a West Coast population, and we're very concerned about them. I, I have a question. As you, as you look back over your long experience, and, and particularly with the, the Portland Zoo, governance is always a question for an operation like a zoo. Do you have, do you have any thoughts about governance, about how well it works? If, if, you were, if you were able to design the perfect system, would it be the one we have? Or if not, what would it be? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I was on the Zoo Association Accreditation Commission for 10 years, and I've looked at all 240 accredited zoos and aquariums and their governance systems, and different things work in different places. So Metro Regional Government is the parent organization here, um, you know, for the National Zoo, Smithsonian is the parent organization. 19 museums and one zoo. Um, and they're about 50% of our accredited members are, are owned and operated by a government. And the other 50% are private. And I can tell you that both work and, and sometimes depending on, you know, how the region feels about the zoo, say the Detroit Zoo, privatization has been the best thing for that zoo you know, over time. Um, and for others, staying with the government has been the best thing over time. So, sorry, uh, I, I have um, a very, very malleable opinion on that one <laughs> because I've seen how all of them work and um, they can all work very well because all of those dues remain accredited. Have you been happy with the support that Metro has given? I think... Um, the the amount of um, operating support we're an enterprise unit of metro um the amount of operating support is is good um the amount of bond support is beyond good that's why i came here to see the bond uh program to the end where you know the last three habitats that were either renovating or building completely anew our uh, polar passage for polar bears uh, primate forest for primates, and then a, a rhino habitat um, kind of renovation, and um, it's been amazing. But but also critical to that has been 
Oregon Zoo Foundation being able to raise a lot of money from philanthropists and just basic supporters to help that on. So, you know, a $125 million bond that's over 10 years old now has um, program has become a $155 million program because of the support of the Zoo Foundation. So that that mix of support is also really important. As folks may know, as a lot of people know, some people might not know, uh, the Metro Regional Government is the uh, is essentially the zoo operator, not the zoo operator, but the the what would you call it, the house of the zoo, the financial house of the zoo. What does the budget process look like for you? What does that or did it look like for you? Do you what, what's the interaction like as you run an enterprise system within the metro system? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so we're we're really so the the metro tax base provides about 30% of our operating support. And then we have to figure out the other 70%. Um, The foundation through memberships and donations has contributed about 10% um, of operating more, more of, you know, the capital budget. And, um, and then we're reliant on our general admissions and on retail sales and on rentals. So, you know, um, a group like Nike can come in in an evening pre-COVID and rent the entire zoo for the evening um, and have a party, right? Or Intel, have a big party for their for their customers. And that that makes money for the enterprise. Um, So I've been I've been happy with total public support here. I think I think it's been great. Um, uh, Metro also gives us you know, legal support and human resources support. Um, it's, it's a great, um, it's a great relationship. And I don't know if, you know, I know the reading between the lines, the question is, would changing governments to a county government or um, the, the city didn't work, they had to give the zoo over to Metro because the zoo is a, an expensive place to run. Um, would privatization work? I don't know what would work best in in this community, but so far, um, this level of support as an enterprise unit, you know, has has worked out okay. Do there end up being metro counselors who take a particular interest in the zoo? Very often, specialties develop within legislative bodies. I wonder if there have been metro counselors over the years who have really dug into the operations and/or principles and policies of the zoo. Um, yeah, well, Metro is a, a policy-setting body, and so um, you know we've we've ensured that our policies and our strategic vision fall under the Metro um, umbrella, and then Metro Council, you know, we have conversations with Metro Council, and then Metro Council ap- approves those, um, and I've been pretty. Um, strong in my opinion that, that it should be approved by both Metro Council and the Oregon Zoo Foundation Board because, you know, after all, they're raising money to support the zoo. So they have to be um, in agreement with our, our policies and our advocacy as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's worked out for the best so far. Any unsung heroes? Maybe there's too many to count, but maybe there are a few that are worth mentioning. Folks, may, heck, maybe they were metro counselors. Maybe they were members of the zoo foundation. Maybe they were uh, they were workers at the zoo. Anybody who really merits a shout out? 
I think um, now retired council president Tom Hughes uh, was a huge supporter of the zoo's role in Malaysian Borneo um, hmm. and went to Borneo himself uh, on behalf of, you know, business in Portland and in the region. Um, uh, he stands out. I think, you know, I, I'm going to give a shout out to the entire zoo staff. They're passionate. They're compassionate. They're really, really hard workers. Um, the directors that preceded me who set up the bond, who carried on the bond, um, you know, it, it's the zoo is a very, very complex kind of a small city in a cultural institution and probably one of the most complex cultural institutions you'll ever see. And so it takes a village. Um, you know, the entire board of directors of Oregon Zoo Foundation and the staff there have been very, very passionate about raising money for us and, and also advocating for things like um, Oregon Measure 100, which protected a whole bunch of, of species. And, yeah, it takes a village. It's a lot of people. I don't want to forget anybody. <laughs> We're talking to Don Moore, Dr. Don, director of the Oregon Zoo, now retiring after a 45-year career in zoo management. So grateful to have this chance to talk to you. You mentioned Borneo. I'm seeing now that uh, this story back in 2016, just a little over four years ago, the Oregon Zoo sending milk to Borneo for orphaned elephant babies. Tell us about the relationship with Borneo. Give us a little more. Yeah, so our elephant, Chendra, is from Borneo. She was orphaned uh, at the edge of an oil palm plantation there. And, um, you know, the, the Malaysian government looked worldwide to see who could take care of her because at the time they didn't have space, they didn't have supplies. And so she came to Portland. And so when we were, you know, um, working on our, our strategic plan for conservation, we've identified Borneo and Asian elephants and orangutans as, um, as part of our conservation focus. And um, so they had a bunch of orphans all at one time and they had run out of milk supplies and we had an emergency endangered species emergency fund. And so we transferred money um, to Borneo so that they could buy those milk supplies. Through the Oregon Zoo Foundation, we've also provided funding for a Malaysian woman to get her a PhD in in elephant conservation at the human elephant interface, so to, to reduce human elephant conflict. And now we also um, provide money for her two rangers. Um, so she has two rangers who also do um, human elephant conflict and take care of the orphaned elephants that end up in the sanctuary there. So it's a it's a pretty robust program. Other zoos have also. Um, you know, gotten in on the ground to to help with orangutan conservation and things like that. Um, but we're pretty we're pretty passionate about it. The entire staff is. Well, I got to ask this question. Everybody, it's everybody's asked, wondering about your views on it. Did you watch Tiger King? You really had to ask that question. <laughs> yes, I got up to I think it was episode four and I just couldn't watch anymore um, you know I talked about accredited zoos before I hate roadside menageries and 
he operates a roadside menagerie, even though in the show he claimed he was accredited. We can't figure out who he was accredited by, but it wasn't the zoo association because our standards are very much higher than, than that. But, um, yeah, I forced myself to watch some and then I couldn't watch it anymore. Roadside menagerie. Thank you for that. Thank you for that phrase. I wouldn't have known what to call his horror show. I wouldn't have known, uh, you know, other than Tiger, you know, the name of the TV show. So Roadside Menagerie is helpful as distinct from a zoo, which is an accredited organization, which has standards for animal care. That's right. Very high standards for animal care beyond what U.S. Department of Agriculture has. He barely meets U.S. Department of Agriculture standards from what I could see in the show. Dr. Don, not to be confused of anybody's animal king, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for spending this time. Dad, was there anything that you wanted to... Uh, I'm just so grateful that he was willing to spend the morning with us, and I'm so grateful for all that he's done for our community. Don Moore, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a great and safe day out there. Take care. We're going to have just a hello from Tim Barcroft, and then we'll have a straw in the wind. Uh, Tim, it has been far too long. It is going to be wonderful to hear your voice, and we probably have one time for at least one update from our international chief correspondent. Hello. It's wonderful to hear you as well. And just as an update, the situation in Belarus appears to be uh, stabilizing and getting more complex as the uh, members of independent, as in non-government affiliated workers unions, um, decide to maybe get involved and maybe start striking for in support of new elections and uh, maybe a, a, a move towards a more democratic government while also being cautious about an outcome uh, like the dismantlement of the old URSS where you saw a lot of uh, really brutal um privatizations and the standard of living going down. So the people in Belarus appear to be walking a thin line, but hopefully towards democracy. And what's the quick thing? What was the militating cause of this? And where does and I I seem to, you know, I have a Vladimir Putin fixation. And where does he weigh in on any of this, if at all? Uh, Vladimir Putin has a complex relationship with uh, Lukashenko, the president of uh, Belarus, the the sort of instigating thing that happened was uh, there was an election that was obviously fraudulent uh, where Lukashenko claimed to have gotten 91% of the vote, and nobody believes that's true. Um, whether or not the opposition candidate uh, actually got a majority is not sh- not certain. Um, Putin has weighed in in support of Lukashenko, and this appears to have been a relatively good outcome for him because he wanted to have a weakened but still in power Lukashenko so that he could work on the project of absorbing Belarus into the Russian Federation. At least that's what some analysts I've read suggest. Um, So this is a geopolitical situation which is recognized as complicated even by the members of the protests who are the opposition party and the protests themselves are pretty adamant that they want neither Russia nor the EU to be terribly involved in what they consider to be an internal Belarusian affair. So um, detail and complexity uh, all the way down uh, as far as this situation is concerned. Yeah, and we have at least like 62 more seconds to deal with it. So what is the next step? What are you watching for? Um, I'm watching for 
the nature of the demands that are coming out of the protests. Uh, a lot of the people in the protests are being pretty cautious about just saying, let's overthrow this government and push for a new one as quickly as possible, because they're looking to avoid the bad situation in the Ukraine, where it's different flavors of nationalists on two sides of a, of a bloody civil war. And that's really not uh, a good outcome for a lot of the people who are in the streets, which is leading to a pretty big tent coalition that hasn't articulated any concrete demands other than getting a new and fair election. So without the involvement of an outside power, uh, it's not clear how a new and fair election would come about, but I'm watching for a, uh, a transition plan to come about pretty much. Well, Tim, we appreciate hearing your voice is good. Uh, anything that we sh- else we should know about Lukashenko? I mean, Lukashenko is the Bel- Belarus is basically the last post-Soviet state. Uh, he successfully maintained public control over a lot of the industry and basically life in the in the aftermath of the breakup of the Soviet Union, and so he's. Um, credited by a certain part of his party and by a certain part of the international left for maintaining a level of democratic control uh, in big air quotes and also welfare state in a place in an air a region that didn't have such good luck uh, in the 1990s with that however um, he has bent to the international monetary fund like everybody else and um, you know all, all that all that goes with that in terms of the ability of his people to um, make uh, decent livings for themselves at the bottom of the social pyramid. So it's uh, he is uh, playing on so- on socialist imagery. He is playing on former national glory. He keeps up Stalinist era statues and monuments in his country, but in the end, uh, it appears to be more for fluff and show than actual substance. Tim Markoff, thanks a bunch for being with us. By the way, if you're wondering, Belarus is right to the west of Moscow, right to the west of Russia. You have to go through Belarus if you want to invade Poland or even visit there uh, from Russia. Uh, Thank you so much, Tim, for being with us. Thank you. Dad, it is time for a quick straw in the wind. Quick straw in the wind. Representative Rashida Tlaib, Muslim member of Congress, has joined the Free Thought Caucus bringing the Free Thought Caucus in the House of Representatives up to 13. These are individuals who recognize that it should not be necessary to belong to a religious organization to be serving in Congress. And I hope that turns out to be a big straw in the wind. Well, Pop, we did it one more time. Love you, Dad. And we'll be back on Thursday.